Christianity teaches that human beings have souls that can survive the death of our physical bodies. In fact, the great hope of all Christians from all times is that Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead by joining our physical bodies once again with our souls so we can live with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth. But how do we know that souls exist? In this video, I'm going to introduce the concept of mind-body dualism and explain a couple arguments that conclude there is more to reality than just physical stuff. I'm looking forward to it and I hope you'll stick around. Welcome back. In this lecture, I am going to talk about mind-body dualism. So, <clears throat> we just got finished talking about the moral argument for God's existence, and that finishes out our, our series of lectures over God's existence. Now, I wanted to uh, continue in um, talking about more metaphysical topics, uh, God's existence obviously is one of those because God is thought to be this immaterial, infinite uh, being. But also I wanted to talk about other immaterial things like the soul. Uh, and that's what I wanted to transition into in this lecture over mind-body dualism. So over the next few lectures, I'm going to talk about what mind-body dualism is, what physicalism is, which is the opposite view from that and how it denies the soul, then I'm going to give, uh, and in this lecture, I'm going to mainly talk about arguments against physicalism, the idea that you are completely physical and you don't have a soul. In the next lecture, I'm going to talk about arguments, uh, positive arguments for uh, the soul. And then in, in the last lecture uh, over our series, our three-part series on the soul, I'll talk about the argument uh, from reason which is kind of a reductio ad absurdum, showing that it's actually, um, it's actually illogical, it's self-defeating to believe that you don't have a soul. So that's what these next few lectures are going to be over. And um, so, since we kind of repeated our Bible verse in the last lecture, just like we usually do, I'm going to start with another Bible verse in this lecture. And our Bible verse for this lecture comes from uh, the first uh, book of the Bible, Genesis. So Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. I really like this passage for the transition from talking about the moral argument to arguments for the soul. Um, before I say a few things, uh, let me read a quote uh, that I've read. I don't have time to go into this. There's been this debate over what Genesis, what the author of Genesis is talking about whenever he says, let us make, uh, whenever he describes God saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay. And I wanted to read you a quote from a book called Kingdom Through Covenant, A Biblical Theological Understanding of the Covenants by Peter J. Gentry and Stephen J. Wellam. Okay, here's what they say. Um, 
They say, given the normal meanings of image and likeness in the cultural and linguistic setting of the Old Testament in the ancient Near East, likeness specifies a relationship between God and humans such that Adam can be described as the son of God and image describes a relationship between God and humans such that Adam can be described as a servant king. Although both terms specify the divine human relationship, the first focuses on the human in relation to God, and the second focuses on the human in relation to the world. These would be understood to be relationships characterized by faithfulness and loyal love, obedience and trust, exactly the character of relationships specified by covenants after the fall. So, um, you know, if you are familiar with Genesis saying that human beings are made in the image of God, and that's definitely something that's said in Christianity a lot uh, and, and emphasized in Christianity, you've probably heard that uh, being made in the image of God means that basically you're a moral being, you have an intellect and a will. Now, but what Gentry and Wellam have argued is that there's more to it than just that. Um, what this these terms mean, what the author in his ancient Near Eastern context meant, was that whenever Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, they represent, that means that human beings represent God on earth, kind of like his servant kings, okay? You're supposed to represent God. That's actually... That's how uh, that's one of the reasons why you have Christian ethics. It mainly revolves around the fact that every individual human being is made in the image of God and has intrinsic worth. And then Wellam and, and Gentry emphasize that likeness uh, means that uh, every human being is a child of God, uh, more of a sonship, daughtership relationship there. So very interesting that in this first chapter of Genesis, it's saying that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, so, but I'm not saying that this doesn't mean that they don't have an intellect and a will, because obviously, so if you are supposed to represent God on earth and God is good, then that means that you ought to act good as well because you are God's representative. Like I said, this grounds Christian morality. Um, but you can't be a moral agent unless you have an intellect and a will. So being made in the image and likeness of God actually presupposes that human beings have a soul, okay, with an intellect and a will. So I, I really enjoy this passage. It not only kind of shows you how morality is grounded and how from the very first page of the, or excuse me, very first chapter of the Bible, uh, the ancient Near Eastern author is talking about something similar to what we talked about in the last lecture, that God created every uh, God created everything and every human for a specific purpose. Well, this is one of our purposes. Uh, it's not only to be in this loving, knowing uh, relationship with God, to know and to love God, right? But also to represent God on earth and to be good, moral people, uh, be good to God and be good to each other, so... It's an interesting, great passage. But let's talk about the questions for reflection for this lecture. So here they are, and the answer to these is going to be apparent as you go along. I don't really need to say much about these. The first question is, the soul is thought to be an immaterial substance. Does the concept of an immaterial substance sound strange to you? Why or why not? 
Do you agree? The second question is, do you agree that mental and physical states are different in kind and not degree? Why or why not? And the last question is, have you ever thought of the subjectivity of mental states and how this defies physical explanation? Do you think this provides evidence against physicalism? Why or why not? So just some extra questions to be thinking about. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can always uh, put some answer these in the comments section if you would like. If you're listening on podcast, you can send me an email if you have any questions. Okay, I'd, I'd love to interact with you guys. Um, but uh, like I said, in this lecture, I want to discuss mind-body dualism, discuss physicalism, and then we're going to present some arguments against physicalism. Okay, <clears throat> you're going to see that uh, by showing physicalism to be false, that doesn't necessarily mean that mind-body dualism is going to be true. But this is a great first step. And it's also a time where I want to basically define a lot of terms to help make sense out of some of our arguments when we get to the positive, positive arguments for the soul. So the first term I want to define, obviously, since we're going to be arguing against it, is uh, the term physicalism. So I've been saying that a lot. But here's, here's what I mean when I say that. So, um, And I'm getting this, uh, actually, a lot of this material on the soul um, I kind of took kind of some a lot of the concepts, kind of some of the flows of my thoughts, uh, come from J.P. Moreland's book. J.P. Moreland is a Christian philosopher. He had wrote a book called The Soul: How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters. Okay, so that's where my definitions are coming from here. Uh, so physicalism is the view that the only things that exist are physical substances, properties, and events. In relation to human beings, the physical substance is the material body, especially the brain and central nervous system. So physicalism is this metaphysical view that the only thing usually entails that the only thing in reality is uh, only type of stuff in reality is physical stuff. Okay, uh, As an overall metaphysical view, it says that there are no such things as immaterial substances. There's no angels. There's no God. There's no souls. Um, so usually a physicalist is someone who believes that everything that exists is physical. Uh, and if it, if it's not physical, it doesn't exist. Okay. Um, I mean, it's different when you just take this question and apply it to human beings, right? Maybe you believe in angels or something, but I guess you could still be a physicalist when it comes to the human person. But anyways, usually a physicalist is someone who believes that there are no such thing as immaterial things whatsoever. The only thing that exists are the only things that exist are physical things. Okay, and that's physicalism. Our next major term that we want to define is substance dualism. This is generally a, a, a term that Christian philosophers use when they're talking about their belief that there is a soul. Okay, just to be 100% honest, um, I actually hold to something that wouldn't necessarily qualify, but it's really quote, close to substance dualism. In the philosophy of mind, I personally hold to a view called hylomorphism. It's more of an Aristotelian view. It does entail that you have an immaterial intellect and a will, though. So, but um, I just want to argue for substance dualism in this in these lectures because it would take a lot of a lot more explaining to explain uh, my views on hylomorphism. Okay, but let's just talk about substance dualism. Uh, here, Moreland defines substance dualism as a human person has both a brain that is a physical thing with physical properties and a mind or soul that is a mental substance and has mental properties. Okay, so 
So substance dualist is anyone who thinks that you, as a human, are both a physical body and an immaterial soul put together uh, to make one substance, okay? Or excuse me, I think I said that incorrectly. Your 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 body is a physical substance. Your soul is a is a mental substance. Okay. Now, um, I need to define terms here. This is gonna, especially if you're watching this on a video, this is gonna get old. Uh, but I need to define a, a handful of terms and 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 list out every single one. Uh, because these terms are going to be popping up a lot when we talk about our arguments for and against uh, against physicalism for uh, dualism. Okay, so, uh, but especially in this lecture, I'm going to give an argument um, against physicalism, and and I'm going to need to mention some of these things. So, so these are important, and also don't forget these because I might be uh, pointing back to these uh, terms and definitions in the next couple lectures. But let's just define a few things to to really bring out some things that we're talking about, okay? When we talk about a substance, especially if you heard me say that there is a mental substance or the mind is an immaterial substance, a lot of my students, when I get into the philosophy of mind uh, where I teach at a community college, it blows their mind when I say the word immaterial substance. <laughs> they think it's like I'm saying turkey bacon or, or you know, square circle or, or something that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And it's because, you know, if you if you went to public school and say you your parents aren't religious or you've never really learned about um, religion or or anything like that. If you go to public school, obviously, you're you're most likely more likely than not to have uh, not taken a class on metaphysics. Right. Like uh, in in public school, you just whenever you're thinking about uh what do you learn in public school about the world? You know, when when you get to a philosophy class, you'll you'll learn that your your view of the world, uh, a lot of times the views that we have fall into different categories, especially in metaphysics. Metaphysics is the the philosophy of what is most fundamentally real. Okay. Well, uh, public schools are teaching metaphysics; they just don't realize it. And what happens is, if you go to public school and all you're going to learn, you're going to have a metaphysical viewpoint of the world. And what happens is when you go to public school, all you really learn about the world, how to view the world, what is most fundamentally what is most fundamentally real is that you're just going to learn that, you know, what is most fundamentally real? Well, it's uh, fundamental particles that I learned in science class and, and how is causality a thing? Well, that's the laws of nature uh, working throughout. So, so, uh, but what is most what is most fundamentally real in, in reality is these fundamental particles and how they interact. So whenever you get to philosophy class and your philosophy, uh, your philosophy professor starts talking about immaterial substances, uh, that to you is just going to sound like it's going to sound like nonsense. <clears throat> but uh, the way philosophers uh, in Western philosophy have defined substance. Uh, is is not does not entail necessarily entail physicality okay so that's why this is another reason why it's so important to uh, uh, to define this so uh, here's our definition of substance okay Moreland defines it as a particular individual continuant and basic fundamental existent thing that is a unity of parts properties and capacities and has causal powers so 
<laughs> if you're listening to this on a podcast, maybe you'll want to rewind that and write down that list because I need to go through all of these parts of this definition. Substance is a particular, individual, continuant, and basic, fundamental existent thing that is a unity of parts, properties, and capacities and has causal powers. Okay? So I want to go through a handful of the aspects of that uh, definition here in a second. One of those things that we said is that substances have properties. Moreland defines a property as an existent reality that is universal, immutable, and can or perhaps must be in or had by other things more basic, such as a substance. For, for example, a cow, which is a substance, can have the property of being brown. The brownness is the property had by the cow, which is a substance. Does that make sense? So you have substances which are uh, as fundamental as it gets. And I'm going to mention these here in a second. A cow would be a substance and a cow might be brown. Well, the brownness of the cow is the is a property. Uh, the brownness is in the cow. The brownness doesn't exist by itself. We'll get into these here in a second. And then finally, you have an event. We defined an event as a temporal state that occurs in the world, like water freezing or a dog barking. Uh, that's pretty simple. But if you remember, we said that substances are, are, are have uh, several main aspects, and I wanted to talk about the definitions of some of these. So we said that a substance is particular. Particular is defined as uh, an individual thing that cannot be in more than one place at a time, okay? Uh, particular in philosophy and metaphysics is usually distinct or uh, distinguished, uh, contrasted with a universal. A universal is something that can be in many places at a time, like brownness, for example. Brown can be um, in chocolate. Brown can be uh, in a cow, and brownness can be in two places at one time. Well, anyways, a particular cow can't be in two places at a time unless you cut it in half. Hopefully you don't do that. <laughs> but you can't have this one individual cow and it be in more than one place at a time because it is a particular cow. Okay? It might seem silly, but these, uh, these are very important metaphysical distinctions that, that are going to help us later on. A substance is also a continuant. A continuant is a... Uh, is something that continues, which is to say it stays the same through change in some way. So we would say that human beings are continuants, right? Like I say that I am the same person, even though I've been going through physical changes over, say, the past 20 years, I'm still the same person. So as a substance, I am a continuant, okay? Another aspect of substance that we mentioned was that a substance is fundamental, okay? A substance is as basic as it gets, and that is to say that substance is not something, is not in something like red is in an apple or brown is in a cow, right? We, we when we talk about a substance, we're saying that it's something that just exists, and you don't get any more fundamental than that. So, um, but like brownness, for one, is a property, and a property is a universal. So brownness can't exist by itself. It has to exist in something. Well, a substance doesn't have to exist in something because a substance is, is fundamental, okay? It doesn't get any lower than that. Um, a substance is also what we call a unity. And this is important here. Uh, Moreland defines a unity as a, a, 
and he says a substance is a unity of parts, properties, and or capacities. So when we say a substance is a unity, we're saying that it is a one thing and it and it's might be made up of parts, properties, and or capacities. Okay. And a substance has causal powers. That's our last aspect of substance that we're going to talk about. A substance has causal powers, which is to say a substance is something that can cause things to happen in reality. So especially these last two, unity and causal powers. Notice that a substance is a, can be, it says, a unity of parts, properties, and or capacities. Okay, And when you're talking about the soul, then a lot of times we're going to say the soul is at least ha, is going to be a unity of capacities and the soul has causal powers. So notice that you can, it doesn't have to be physical. Uh, what, what philosophers have been saying for a long time is that it, at the very least, a substance is something that can cause effects in reality. So a substance doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a physical thing, okay? Um, and I've already mentioned some of the aspects, uh, some of the aspects of properties, but I want to go ahead and, and read through these these terms as well. If you remember, the definition of property is an existent reality that is universal, immutable, and can be in or had by other things more basic. Okay, um, and I, just to bring out the difference between a property and a substance, I wanted to point out some of these aspects. Uh, just these three aspects of a property that are mentioned, and then we can finally move on and talk about arguments against physicalism, okay? So a property is a universal. I've already mentioned this. A universal, uh, so a property is not particular because it can be in more than one place at a time, right? I already said that many that brownness is a property. It's uh, And we're, what we're saying is it's a universal and when we say universal, we just mean it can be in more one place at a time. And there's no contradiction about that. It would be contradictory to say that my dog Fido is in two places at once because that doesn't happen. He's a, my particular dog Fido is only in one place at a time. But uh, brownness uh, is a universal. It can be in many places at once. And there's nothing contradictory about that because that's just the nature of a universal. And a property is a universal. Okay. Uh, it's uh, properties are also what we call immutable, which means it does not change. Properties do not change over time, like substances. A substance might go through might go through change, but the properties the substance has don't change themselves. Does that make sense? Like uh, you know, we've been talking about apples, we've been talking about cows, and you might say, well, the cow might get burned, or or the the apple might go bad, or it might get ripe, or something, and change color. But notice that you're talking about the apple changing colors. This would be the substance changing its properties. At any given time, the property of the apple itself, thought about as itself, as the universal, is not going to change. Does that make sense? So, uh, I don't know. Let's talk about a, a banana, a yellow banana turning brown. Yellowness doesn't change when the banana changes to brown. It's just that the property switches to a different property. Does that make sense? Yellow itself, yellowness, doesn't change when a banana goes from yellow to brown. The properties get switched out for different properties in the substance. So yellowness itself, when you think about what is yellowness and you understand what that is, you're thinking about the immutable, universal yellowness. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and and again, uh, property is not basic. So that it's not like a, su- a substance is basic. It doesn't get any more fundamental than that. A property is not basic. A property is in things. Okay, it can't exist by itself. It has to exist in other things. Other things have to possess it. Okay, but these these are really important. And why are they important? Because we want to consider the question. Uh, because physicalism says everything is physical. So we want to ask ourselves, is everything physical? Is that true? Now, to you know, give you examples of some of the things we've been talking about, here's a list of physical things, okay? And I'm going to talk about physical substances, physical properties, physical events to give us some examples. So um, physical substances would include things like computers, carbon atoms, brains, billiard balls, okay? Physical properties would include uh, negative charge, mass, height, density, things like that. Physical events would include flashes of lightning, uh, electrons moving, or the firings of a neuron. Okay, And what we're saying, what we're emphasizing is that physicalists believe there is nothing in reality that isn't physical. But here's the thing. Obviously... The mind-body dualist disagrees with the physicalist because the mind-body dualist says that a human being is both a soul and a body put together. Okay? And the, and the mind-body dualist is claiming that there are some things in the rally that cannot be physical. And these would include things like sensations, like colors, sounds, smells, tastes, textures, pains, itches. Propositional attitudes, like hopes, desires, fears, dreads, wishes, thoughts, beliefs, or acts of will, like the exercise of power for a purpose. The dualist is saying that these things are not physical, like the physical things. And if you just look at these two lists, or think about these two lists, uh, you, you can definitely notice the differences. Let me talk about these prepositional attitudes, like hopes, desires, fears, dreads. These, I think this is one of the easiest things to just list off and 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 maybe it be apparent to people that this is obviously things that aren't physical. You know, like when you think of it, like how much does, how much does hope weigh? Where is hope? Um, your fear of heights. What color is that? You know, these obviously seem to be category mistakes. I'm, I'm asking the physical properties of these propositional attitudes. Uh, but, it seems to be a category mistake, like physical properties do not apply to them. So what are they? And what the mind-body dualist is saying is that they are immaterial uh, uh, things that, that um, are involved with the, the immaterial mind or the soul, okay? But this big question, so what's happening is if you think that everything is physical, you're going to think that these things on this list can be explained materially, physically. And you're going to think basically that everything in nature excuse me, everything in reality is physical, right? And it cannot, so if we find something in reality, it's got to be explained physically somehow or, or, or in some way be identical to some physical thing, basically, right? But um, one of the major ways that the mind-body dualist tries to show that physicalism is false is by trying to show that physical things aren't identical to mental things. So, and if there are mental things in the, in the world and that are not physical, then that means that physicalism is false, okay? And uh, one thing, one important concept that we can help ourselves to show this is uh, 
a principle called Leibniz's Law of the Indiscernibility of Identicals. Uh, this is something formulated by the German Lutheran philosopher and mathematician Gottfried uh, Leibniz. The, uh, he's a modern thinker living between 1646 and 1716 uh, was his life. Um, like I said, he came up with something, Leibniz came up with something called the law of the indiscernibility of identicals. Okay, and this is really going to help us bring out some of the reasons why we think physicalism is false. And here's how the law goes. So, uh, and again, I'm getting this from J.P. Moreland's uh, the book called The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters. Uh, the law is listed as for any entities X and Y, if X and Y are identical, meaning they are really the same thing, there's only one thing you're talking about, not two, then any truth that applies to X will apply to Y as well. Does that make sense? If we're saying that um, uh, whenever we're talking about any things X and Y, and we're saying that they're identical, you know, maybe I'm talking about H2O and water, and I'm asking, are these things identical? Um, if they're identical, then any truth that applies to H2O will also apply to water, right? Um, so, using this law, and it makes sense, right? I mean, do we really, you know, we could debate it, I guess, but it seems to be pretty simple. If, so, if, if two things are identical and it's just two ways of saying the same thing, then uh, if they're both the same, then uh, everything that applies to one is going to apply to the other. But what the mind-body dualist says is that, similar to what I just mentioned, is that whenever you look at hopes, desires, fears, dreads, wishes, thoughts, and like we'll mention here in a second, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, there seems to be things about it that aren't identical to, uh, to physical things. Okay, so they seem to not be identical. Um, and here's a, a, a list... Okay, this is, this is basically using the, the law of the indiscernibility of identicals. This is one argument against physicalism that a mind-body dualist will use. Okay, now I've got a list of things that uh, mind-body dualists argue are not identical to physical things. So, this, this first one has to do with sensations, okay? So, the mind-body dualist, for, for one, I've got five bullet points. The first one is... There is a raw qualitative feel or a what it is like to having a mental state such as pain. Okay. Now, whenever, so what they're saying, what the mind-body dualist is saying is that there's a qualitative feel to sensations. There is a what it is likeness to have that sensation, right? So if you think about some of those things that we talked about, color, sound, smells, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? These things do entail physicality because I, I smell, I see, and I feel uh, physical things. But here's the thing. What we're talking about is the color, the sensation of the color, okay? Think about this. When, when you look at um, a sunset or anything, really, Let's say you just look at a red apple or a brown cow or a yellow banana. Can you explain to me in physical terms what it is like to see redness? What is it, what it, is, what is it like to see the color red? Uh, maybe let's put it a different way. Let's say that there's a blind, let's say that you know a person who's been blind from the day they were born. And you're going to try to explain the color red to him or her. 
Can you do that in solely physical terms? The answer is no, you can't. It's actually, people don't realize this until they get into a philosophy class. or A lot of times they don't. But it's actually impossible to explain uh, the what it is likeness of most sensations, right? If I was to try to explain to you what redness is, I would I could point to red things. I could uh, I could tell you how it makes me feel, maybe, but I can't actually explain redness. I just it's just something I experience. But that's not true of physical things. We can explain physical things in terms of physical properties, right? Uh, so the the what it is likeness, the qualitative feel of sensations is something that philosophers think, uh, uh, my biodualists argue, uh, cannot be explained in physical terms. Therefore, they can they are not identical to the physical. Um, number two, mental. Here's another list uh, against physicalism. Many mental states have intentionality, ofness, or aboutness directed towards an object. For example, I can have a thought about a cat or of a lake. Um, actually, let me go ahead and just read the rest of this list and show you an example that will use all of these uh, these bullet points. Number three, mental states are inner, private, and immediate to the subject having them. Four, mental states require a subjective ontology. That is, mental states are necessarily owned by the first person sub- subject who has them. Only I can possess my thoughts. No one else can. And five, mental states fail to have crucial features that characterize physical states and in general cannot be described using physical language. Okay, so my thoughts have no physical dimensions, no physical location, aren't made of simpler building blocks. Does that make sense? Let me bring all these bullet points uh, to bear by using a thought experiment. So if you remember, we're saying there's a what it is likeness to mental states. Mental states have intentionality. Mental states are inner, private, and immediate. They require subjective ontology, and they have uh, crucial features that can't be explained in physical terms. Okay, Now, let's say that you or maybe Leibniz is thinking about baseball and thinking about a, their, your specific favorite baseball player. Okay. Uh, this is a great example to kind of bring out all of those bullet points we just said and show why your thought about a baseball player is not a physical thing, okay? So for one, your thought is going to include a bundle of qualia. I didn't define that, but qualia, a, a, a philosopher thinks of qualia as the what it is likeness. So if you look at a red apple, you're experiencing the qualia of red, okay? Uh, but anyways... For one, your thought will include a bundle of qualia, such as colors, that cannot be explained in physical terms. Secondly, your thought is about a baseball player, okay? You know, if you think about a picture of a baseball player, is that what we call that a thought? Is that, let's put it this way, if you look at a picture of a baseball player, is that picture about the baseball player, or is it a picture of the baseball player? Visual representations of things are different than thoughts about things. And a picture of a baseball player is different than your thought about a baseball player. You see how your thought has intentionality, it has aboutness, okay? Thirdly, your thought is not accessible to anyone on the planet. Physical states are accessible to any observer, but your thought is only accessible to you. If your thought was physical somehow, 
then we should be able to cut your head open and see your or detect your thought of a baseball player. But your thought of that baseball player, no one can see that. It's only um, accessible to you. So that is something that is not identical to physical things. Fourthly, you alone own your thought. Uh, physical things can be owned by anyone, but your thought is only owned by you. So there's another thing. And fifthly and finally, your thought does not weigh anything, right? It doesn't have a color or a smell. So uh, your thought um, is not is not in, in space somewhere. You know, we just can't, when we think about the thought itself, like you might be thinking of a baseball player with a gray uniform, but your thought is not gray itself, right? You're having a thought about a gray uh, uniform. So your thought doesn't have physical properties. And this is just a way of showing that mental contents are not physical. And if that is the case, then physicalism is false. Okay. I want to show you another similar argument known as the knowledge argument. Um, this is an interesting argument that has come out of the uh, uh, branch of philosophy called philosophy of mind. And uh, it is a argument that a specific philosopher used in the debate over uh, physicalism and, and mind-body dualism and all that. Okay, it was actually a philosopher named Frank Jackson uh, in an article in, in the 1980s. Um, he, he wrote this uh, article that had a thought experiment in it, okay? And uh, t today this argument is known as the knowledge argument, okay? And, and this argument says that physicalism is false because it does not account for all known facts. In this article, Frank Jackson uses a thought experiment. He basically asks us to think about... It, it's an interesting scenario, okay? I, I don't know how the logistics, logistics of it all work. <laughs> it reminds me of Plato's cave analogy where he says these people grew up chained uh, facing a wall. I don't know how that works, you know, like where they get their food and, and where do they go to the restroom. So it's kind of weird. And this knowledge argument involves this uh, scenario um, with this brilliant neuroscientist named Mary. And we're told to imagine that Mary knows everything there is to know about human color cognition. Okay. Um, she knows completely beyond even what we know today. All of the scientific facts, including physics, chemistry, biology, neuroscience, etc., that are involved with what happens when people see colors and other things like that. So basically, she knows everything there is to know about what happens in the human person whenever someone looks at, a, at an object uh, with color. And, and I think they even say that like she's supposed to be so brilliant and so good at it that maybe you could just be looking at something and she could see the readout of the brain readings and tell you what color that is, you know. She knows all the physics, everything that goes into color cognition. But in this scenario, uh, for some reason, Mary grew up in this facility where she has never seen any color at all. She's only seen uh, shades, different shades of white and black and gray. Okay. So, she, but she knows every physical fact that goes into human color cognition. Then you're told to think about what happens if one day uh, Mary's computer messes up or maybe someone left a door open and she sees a red apple for the first time in her life. 
Okay. So she's never seen a, she's never seen the color red before in her entire life. Physicalism says that all facts about the world are going to be physical facts. But Frank Jackson, when he first wrote this article, argued that when Mary sees that red apple for the first time, she is learning something new. She's gaining some new type of knowledge. But obviously, like we've mentioned before, the, the qualia of redness, the what it is like to see redness, to see the color red, is not something that you can't explain physically, is it? So it seems like Mary has learned something new that's not explained physically. You know, knowing all the physical facts that go into human color cognition didn't make the quality of red appear in her head before she saw the apple. She'd never seen red. She didn't know what it was like to see it. Uh, and because she gained knowledge from looking at the apple, that means that physicalism would be false because there seem to be facts about the world that aren't physical facts. Okay, now some people think that that's a little iffy, uh, and obviously there's been debate over it. Even Frank Jackson himself, I've heard, changed his mind. He thinks that it, it's all explainable physically, so ultimately it, it uh, the, the the knowledge isn't um, when she sees it, it's not it's not knowledge of Im- immaterial things or anything like that. But let's let's think about this though. So. I think it it helps to bring out some dis, some distinctions that are made in epistemology, which is uh, philosophizing about knowledge. What is knowledge? How can we gain it? How can we justify our beliefs? Well, epistemologists make a distinction between something called propositional knowledge, that is your beliefs regarding propositions of the world. So uh, propositional knowledge, let's say, take the proposition, it is raining outside my house. That is a proposition, that's a statement about the world and I can, if it, you know, like um, epistemologists talk about justified true belief. So if that, that is a, if I believe that that is true, then I have a belief that this proposition is true. And if it is raining outside my house, that means the proposition is true. And if I have some good reason for believing it is true, then I'm justified. Well, that's propositional belief, uh, propositional knowledge. Okay. But they also talk about knowledge by acquaintance, and this is just a direct experience of something. You know, if you're tripping, if you're taking a trip to New York City, if you've never been to New York City, you lack um, knowledge by acquaintance of New York City. You might study it on on the internet, you might uh, Google it all day, and you'll gain all sorts of prepositional knowledge of it. But you won't you won't know uh, knowledge have knowledge by acquaintance of New York City until you actually go there and experience it. Okay. Now, what's happening in this Mary's uh, thought, this Mary thought experiment, is that Mary is gaining knowledge by acquaintance of the apple, and you might think, well, that's not propositional knowledge, so that's not going to be a fact about the world. But uh, I mean, I would I would debate that because it's a what it is likeness. It is some kind of knowledge, right? It's knowledge by acquaintance, and that's that's that is a thing. You know, uh, we just talked about it. You can you can know about. New York City, but you can't know New York City until you actually experience it. Just like she can know about apples, but she doesn't know, or she can know about redness, but she doesn't know redness until she actually sees it. But but even if you're not willing to give me that that uh, preposition, that uh, knowledge by acquaintance is a, is a new fact about the world. L- let's talk about all the facts that she could uh, uh, 
extract from the knowledge by acquaintance of redness, okay? So there, are, there is prepositional knowledge that she could learn from her experience of red, and that's, some, that's a few things that Moreland points out. So she is able to gain even more knowledge that wasn't available before she saw the apple, and, and a lot of this is going to be prepositional knowledge. Red is a color, I mean, she knew that before. She knew that before, but she knows it in a different way now. She knows how to arrange objects on the basis of their color. She is aware of her first awareness of redness. I mean, you can talk about all sorts of prepositions that she has gained that she didn't know before. Um, I know how to arrange objects on the basis of a color. That's a proposition she gained. Um, <clears throat> here's here's some here's some good ones. A sensation of redness is more like a sensation of orange than a sensation of something sour. Um, that's a great, I think, proposition that you can abstract from that. She's aware that redness is pleasurable. She knows what it is like to remember the color red. I mean, you could think of many propositions that you could formulate from the experience of redness. So there's a lot of propositional knowledge that she's gaining. There's a lot of, uh, obviously, there's that knowledge by acquaintance that she has gained. And, um, and I just don't, I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's pretty clear that with this knowledge argument, there are facts about the world that aren't explained physically. So physicalism seems to be false. Okay. Now <clears throat> that's what we're going to end with for this lecture. In the next lecture, I'm going to give you specific arguments for mind-body dualism. Okay. The reason is, it's just be. Uh, the reason is because even if physicalism is false, that doesn't necessarily make mind-body dualism true. Uh, the problem is, in the philosophy of mind, there's kind of middle ground views. Uh, so, for example, there's this view called property dualism, where some people, some philosophers argued that uh, there are there's there's only one type of stuff, physical stuff. So it's still it's a kind of physicalism. Uh, but it can have both uh, physical and mental properties, okay? Uh, so it's kind of a middle ground view between dualism and physicalism. So if we showed that physicalism is false, it wouldn't necessarily mean that dualism is true because there's other views involved here. So there's more than two choices. So so that's why we need to go uh, take a step further and show you some um show you some arguments for mind-body dualism, okay? Um, but yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at in the next lecture. Uh, if you've been following the questions for reflection, uh, or if you if you haven't, here they are again. The, the first one is, the soul is thought to be an immaterial substance. So hopefully you can answer this question now. Does the concept of an immaterial substance sound strange to you? Why or why not? Uh, two, do you agree that mental and physical states are different in kind and not degree? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Why or why not? And three, have you ever thought of the subjectivity of mental states and how this defies physical explanation? You know, your thought about a baseball player. Where is that? Who owns that? You know, can we pop up in your head and see that? You know, it's there's this subject there's this subjectivity to it. And do you think this provides evidence against physicalism? Why or why not? Okay. Uh, again, uh, I'm going to leave you with C.S. Lewis. Human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking of, about ourselves and the universe we live in. And as I always do, I wanted to uh, give a quick 
Um, uh, shout out to Southern Evangelical Seminary. If, if this is the first time you're hearing this podcast or seeing this video, um, I just wanted you to know that if you want to know more about theology, more of apologetics or philosophy, uh, you can go to Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is where I got my Ph.D. in philosophy of religion. You can learn about, like I said, philosophy. You can get a specific degree just in philosophy. Or if you want to learn about theology, you can. You can learn. You can do biblical studies. You can learn about apologetics. Uh, you can just get a degree in uh, the Master of Divinity and become a pastor. They've got many options uh, for all sorts of people from all walks of life. A lot of online classes, a lot of in-person classes, but it's a great place, and I highly recommend it. Um, if you're just looking for a, a, a great resource on apologetics, you can go to SES's website, hover over the, the media um, button, and click on Why Trust the God of the Bible. It'll take you to a free PDF, a around 50-page uh, book on apologetics titled Why Trust the God of the Bible. It's a great free resource if you haven't already got that. Also, I wanted to plug a Kingdom Preparatory Academy. It's a classical school where my kids go here in Lubbock, Texas. It's only in Lubbock, uh, but it is, in my opinion, the best choice uh, to send your kids to school in Lubbock, Texas. It's a classical Christian school. Uh, they've got a university model where your your uh, kids will only go to school like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, to prepare them to go on to university and not have that much shock. Uh, but it is a classical school that will teach your children how to think, not what to think. Uh, and it is grounded in the Bible, very Christ-centered, and I love it. I wouldn't send our kids anywhere else, and I highly recommend it. If you go to their website, uh, kingdomprep.org, or just uh, do a Google search and you'll find it easily. Um, I hope uh, you guys benefited from this lecture on mind-body dualism, and I can't wait to talk about arguments for the soul in the next one. I'll see you there.